Amy, on this podcast, we try to always offer useful takeaways. And if you learn nothing else from us, learn this useful parenting lesson by Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 are the ultimate parent hack, the best diaper to use as soon as your baby starts standing or walking. Instead of ordinary diaper tabs, they have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your wild child. Pampers Cruisers 360 makes it so easy to change your baby. Who probably doesn't stop moving just because they need a diaper changed? Just slide on to apply and away they go. And fear not, parents. Pampers Cruisers 360 offers an up to 100% leak-free fit, and they just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we say more? For Trusted Protection Trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupons, savings, and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Amy, and today I'm talking to another Amy, Amy Severson. She is a registered dietitian nutritionist whose work focuses on body positivity, fat acceptance, and intuitive eating. Amy focuses on providing safe and inclusive care for the LGBTQ plus community. Amy identifies as a queer and non-binary. Her new book, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, co-authored with Sumner Brooks, delivers the important message that our kids deserve to feel lovable, worthy, and accepted no matter what their bodies look like. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for having me, Amy. All right. So let's talk about intuitive eating. Like, I mean, from the outside, before I picked up this book, it's like intuitive eating is eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. Is that all there is to it? Or or are we sort of misunderstanding it? I mean, that is the general overarching truth of it. And I think a deeper, really, I don't know, soul deep truth Mm -hmm. to it is it's about trusting your body and allowing your body to trust you and knowing that is instinctual and natural and really a place where we can lean into and allow ourselves to just be okay with however we are whatever we do and the proof of that is that intuitive eating is something we are literally born hardwired knowing how to do. We are, we know as our old babies how to seek out nutrition when we need it and how to stop when we've had enough. Yeah. You know, talking about brand new babies, 90 second old, 30 second old babies like crawling to the breasts on the stomach. And like it's a whole phenomenon. It has a name, which I don't remember, but it has a name. And it's so amazing that we know that this happens for infants and that can continue that experience with food and that trust in themselves can continue as long as it's not washed and just closed off externally as they age and as they get older, because it's a really just cool experience to see. And, you know, I breastfed all three of my kids and I was very lucky, privileged to have the time, the space, the support to do it. And it just happened to work well for me, which isn't true for everybody. I mean, my babies were gaining weight at the rate that the pediatrician thought that they should. They were clearly thriving. Went awesome. I had a lot of reservations about doing it ahead of time, but it went great. That's not always the case, right? And then I have so many friends who got into the like, uh, failure to thrive. I'm going to mark this. You might need a different formula. You might need to supplement. And I'm not saying that there's never reason for 
concern and attention to that. But this road that we start to go down on that our kid really doesn't know what's best for them. And so we have to impose a structure on it. I mean, it could start pretty early, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's everything from, you know, trying to put your baby on a schedule, whether you're I feel like this was more of a trend. Like I was a baby, it was to put your you know breastfed baby on a schedule. Yes, um, but I know it's really common even these days for formula fed babies to be on schedules unless to feed on demand because we have a lot of fears about overfeeding. And there is a little bit more math I think that probably goes into formula feeding just because it's more one to one versus your own body kind of reacting to what your baby is giving you. Right, you can see it that they had six ounces or eight ounces. Yeah, so it's a little bit more like. I don't know, straightforward in that way. Yeah. And also, it's so easy to get caught up in those schedules and caught up in that, well, this is what they did last time. And why aren't they growing? Why are they growing too fast? What's happening here? Yeah, the failure to thrive. And, and it really throws this big fear kind of, it starts the fear-based feeding for our kids. Yes. And the idea that it's not going to be optimal unless we put structure around it, that you can't have a baby just nurse all afternoon and then they don't eat until 10 p.m. or whatever. Like you get in your head like, no, 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 I need to fix that. Yeah. And then from there, then we have a toddler. And then like what happens when kids reach that sort of picky eating toddler stage, which we've talked about on the show before, is like a biological imperative. The caveman toddler that toddled away didn't want that kid to eat the poison berries. So therefore, they become picky when they become mobile. But then this whole other thing kicks in for most parents. Okay. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah, it's 100% a biological drive to eat safe foods because they like instinctively caveman-ish know that it's not going to kill them mm -hmm. to eat chicken nuggets and, you know, noodles. And on top of like, you know, there's all those different neurodivergencies that can kind of cause preferences. Yes. Maybe like texture preferences are a really common one. And like that can complicate things. And for the most part, most kids are going to be okay. There are some exceptions to that rule, but kids are picky. They're picky and they're picky for a long time. Like I think even in my like pretty standard not intuitive eating based nutrition education in college, we had an entire class that talked about the kids' food jags, what they're called, and how normal food jags are. What's a food jag? So a food jag is a length of time, and it could be a variety of lengths of time, that your kid is eating basically like one food. <laughs> yes. Examples we got were like peanut butter and jelly when they want a peanut butter and jelly for breakfast and for lunch and for dinner and dessert. And they're just going to like only eat peanut butter and jellies. And we all like anyone who has a kid has had at least one of those, you know, knows that experience like bone deep, like, oh, my God, if I never see another peanut butter and jelly again, I will be great. Yep. Mine is dino nuggets. I love dino nuggets, but they are so consistent in my house. <laughs> the chi and, and they have to be that shape, right? Like yeah. heaven help you if it's a non dino shape. I think we're just getting to the age where we're allowed to have the like alphabet shaped ones instead of the dino shaped ones, even though the same brand, <laughs> just for the record. Uh, <laughs> One time my kid's grandfather brought the cheese filled dino chicken nuggets and like the cries rendered the heavens of like, I can't eat this. So offensive. <laughs> yeah, but it's very stressful. So you're that parent and Traditionally, we do kind of think, okay, like that food jag is something to be pushed back against or else what? Or else your kid will only ever eat dino chicken nuggets for the rest of their life. But what are we getting wrong? What are we getting wrong when we think that this is something the parent has to fix right now? We often have the fear. I think one of the fears that comes up is that our kid is either not going to get enough food in that space. Like if they're just eating chicken nuggets or they're just eating peanut butter and jellies, there's no way that they're getting enough food or they're not getting a variety enough of food. So we're missing 
crucial vitamins or nutrients. And we're really not like, as long as we're continuing, like if your kid wants to eat just chicken nuggets or just peanut butter and jellies, as long as you're feeding them enough peanut butter and jelly and enough chicken nuggets, they're probably going to get enough food. If it continued for months and years, maybe it's a bit of an issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But if, you know, food drags usually last for a couple of weeks, maybe, maybe a couple of months. And then they kind of shift and change. And that's normal. It's kids testing boundaries, testing safety. And that's okay. And especially for younger kids, it really happens for younger kids. As they start to get like elementary older, their like palates open up more and they start to have more acceptable foods because that's just how their brains work. They slowly open up to that safety. And even with like quote unquote limited palate that kids might have, um, they're getting enough. Like we live in a world that has vitamins and minerals equivalent to like a multivitamin available in every box of cereal. Mm-hmm. And like we've... There's a lot of criticism, I think, about this, but we've gone out of our way as like a country, I guess, like the FDA, USDA has gone out of the way to make sure that we are getting like a certain vitamins really in a lot of our food. Like we're not going to have a folate deficiency as long as your kid eats bread. We enrich rice for a reason. We enrich flour for a reason because we want to make sure that those vitamins are there and we can avoid these like really common deficiencies that used to be really common. They're not common anymore because they're everywhere. Mm. Your kid's not going to get scurvy. Your kid's not going to get you know, rickets with these really kind of old timey nutrient deficiencies because they can get enough from these things as long as we allow them to get enough. And you make the point in the book, and I think this is important to to sort of double click on as a parent of a formerly very picky eater who is now a, you know, voracious college student who eats, you know, everything the dining hall serves. But the answer is neither stop worrying about it, mom, just, you know, just relax a little bit, the kid be fine, or you have to put rigid, rigid structure around it. I think that the real problem, right, is that the society like, okay, sometimes this is a problem. And sometimes this is beyond of the the scope of this book, and you need to get support. But even then, the sort of methods and approaches and mindsets that parents are told to have in response to this, like, that's where the problems start, right? Yeah, the issue isn't your kid isn't eating healthy enough or eating enough vegetables or fruits or eating too many carbs or sweets or whatever the fear is. It's variety. It's just straight up variety because that doesn't lend itself to being a very functional adult if your kid only eats one or two varieties of food forever. And that is a diagnosable eating disorder. Like I have to say that, like you said, just beyond the scope of the book, it's beyond the scope of intuitive eating. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then yes, there's help you can get and help in a very like not contained, but like safe, not going to put pressure on your child to be a different person kind of way, just expand the palate. Right. And, but in a normal sense, and what this book does encompass, food drags are normal. Eating a fairly limited palate as a child is normal. And so is really wanting to have dessert every day and (laughs) really, really liking chips and maybe even not having a lot of energy to like play multiple sports or even any interest to play a lot of sports or not being maybe what we expect or hope or wish or fear that our child won't be, you know? Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Okay, we're talking to Amy Severson, the author of How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, and we'll be right back. Margaret, exciting news. I am about to have a new baby nephew, and believe it or not, this will be my 13th nephew. Amy, you're ready to give up your amateur status. You're a pro aunt at this (laughs) point. Our family has seen a lot of babies. And as soon as they start standing or walking, 
I send them all a whole lot of Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 don't have ordinary diaper tabs. Instead, they have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your newly mobile little one. Pampers Cruisers 360 offer a gap-free fit that is up to 100% leak-proof, crucial once your baby is quite literally up and at them. And that gap-free fit helps prevent your baby from taking off their diaper, a habit you do not want them to get into. You can say that again. And Pampers Cruisers 360 just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we even elaborate on the need for that, friends? For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Margaret, when you've got kids, as just about everybody listening to this right now does, you're probably looking at what they eat and seriously wondering how they could possibly be getting all of the vitamins and minerals they need to grow big and strong. That's why Haya was created, the pediatrician-approved, super-powered, chewable vitamin for kids. Haya fills the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full-body nourishment our kids need. And yes, even your picky eaters will approve. I know mine does. Formulated with the help of nutritional experts, Haya is pressed with a blend of 12 organic fruits and vegetables. Then it's supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals to help support our kids' growing brains and bodies. And Haya vitamins are sent straight to your door, which means you set it and forget it and give yourself one less thing to worry about. We've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. Receive 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, you must go to HayaHealth.com slash fresh. This deal is not available on their regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H, HayaHealth.com slash fresh to get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. Okay, so we're back. So we're talking to Amy Severson. So I want to talk about negative parental control, which is what happens when with the most well-meaning approach, we're like, I, I really have to deal with my kids picky eating. Maybe my kid isn't eating enough at lunchtime. Maybe you're hearing from the pediatrician, this kid is off the growth chart too low, too high. You start to hear about BMI. You start to get these messages. And it is sort of handed to you as the parent, like, this is a big thing. You better get on it. And then we tend to fix it in all the wrong. Well, that it needs to be fixed is the first problem. And then even if it does need to be something that you address, we address it with negative parental control, which is not the way we can approach it. So can you talk about that, how that can manifest? Yeah, that is, you know, when that stuff comes, especially from a doctor, from a pediatrician, from professionals of any type, it's scary. It's like, yeah. you know, your kid is dropping growth um, percentiles or going growing too quickly. Those can be really scary because we're told it's scary. And we do tend to swoop in with that negative parental control, which is that another, like it's over control. It's pressure to eat the food. It's you need to eat the broccoli. You need to stop eating these foods. These foods are bad for you. These foods are good for you. It's really over control in a lot of ways. I mean, if we think about this in any way that's not food, like this is an issue we had this morning with my daughter, actually. 
who is eight. We were, you know, the over control we kind of tried to exert a little bit was how quickly she was getting ready for school and how quickly she was putting her socks on. Yes. Feeling familiar. <laughs> right. Like, well, I think we all kind of know something along those lines. I know somebody who does with this. Weird. <laughs> but like the more we asked her to put her socks on, the more we're like, okay, honey, you need to like get your socks on. Now get your shoes on. Now get your coat on. The faster, we, the more we pushed for that, the faster we wanted her to go, the slower she went. Mm-hmm. And that's not like, I had to tell my husband this because it's not this like intentional. She's trying to like actively choose to like be awful. She's just instinctually pushing against this like over control, like exert autonomy. Yeah. It's a low power strategy of dominance, right? The, right. Yeah. The more you tell me to go fast, I'll just go slower. She can't yell back, but she can go slower. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's like we I mean, in that situation, we can see it like, oh, I guess. Yeah. If we had like maybe been a little more gentle or we had like talked about it in a different way. It probably would have happened. We probably would have got out the door on time for school. And that's like a low stakes way. Like that's a low stakes example. Food feels high stakes, especially when we start to get those messages from doctors, especially when whether it's from a doctor or we have our own fears about what our like how our child's body is developing, or maybe we remember what it was like when we were younger and maybe we had discomforts with our body and we like see that in our child. Anyone who is maybe a bigger kid. And sees their their child being a bigger kid, we kind of know that like fear of like, being bullied or being pushed or whatever that is, and we get this urgency to fix it, and it's a lot more urgent than the urgency to get out the door for school. Yeah, and the urgency to fix it. I mean, the scales fell from my eyes when I was reading this part of the book. Right when a kid is being bullied for being the wrong size, the fix is, well, I'm just going to change my kid's size, right? And this will magically resolve itself. The secret to being happier is to be thinner. And anybody can get thinner. I mean, this is a myth. I'm setting this up as a myth, just to be very clear. But all you have to do is work hard enough, and thinness is available. And then all these other problems will just go away. We're completely looking at the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The belief that thinness is the, is the goal to happiness. Thinness is the thing that will make us have a smoother ride through life, through, although middle school. Mm -hmm. And instead of looking at the way we view bodies or we view food. And I mean, I think because of the work I do, because I wrote this book and because of the work I've done personally, I can look back at like that time of my life and recognize that my issue, my unhappiness that I like felt through middle school. Middle school is my favorite example to use for this because Everyone had some universal experience of some badness there. Right. There is like a lot of that unhappiness, a lot of that like drive to be popular, drive to be, you know, better and like wanting to like, I don't know, that lovely phase of puberty where you hate, everyone hates their body, but I was a bigger kid. It had very little to do with my body and more to do with how mm. not only I perceive my body, but how everyone else around me perceived my body. And the thing that is really difficult, I think, as a parent, and this is even difficult for me today, is knowing that we can't control society. We can't control what how other people are viewing our body or someone else's body. And I would love to be to, to see that societal shift, that cultural shift, and have that be less of a thing. And also, we can really instill in our kids the lack of importance of that, how it doesn't have to be the most important thing. And how maybe happiness doesn't have to do with thinness. Maybe satisfaction with food doesn't have to do with your body size or how healthy you're eating. It can be just feeling like you are satisfied, like you're getting the foods that you enjoy eating and they're giving you energy to do the things that you like to do, to do the activities you like to do, 
that you're doing the activities that you like to do and you can be okay. It's so hard when you as a parent see your kid entering a stage of their development where they are struggling with something that you also struggle with at that stage. Judith Warner wrote a book about this called And Then They Stopped Talking to Me. And it was about this middle school age and how you know the middle school mean girls in the cafeteria thing is so amplified because it was such a hard time for all of us. And it's so hard for us as a parent when we have a kid going through it to not be like, no, don't do it that way. Right. It's like watching a horror movie. Like, don't go in there. Like, we want to fix it. We want to shape it. We want to prevent it. And all of that is, of course, counterproductive. And this is yet another way that parenting a kid who struggles with healthy eating can bring up a lot as a parent if we have struggled with that ourselves. You talk about something called generational dieting in the book which I thought was an important point. Can you tell us a little bit about generational dieting and how that can sort of unthinkingly affect how you parent? Yeah, I love the term generational dieting because we use that like a similar term in a lot of different places, generational trauma, generational, Uh I don't know, I can't think of any others. But I really love that term because we see it, you know, when your mom has body image issues or your dad has body image issues, you do because you've grown up with it as a norm. And, you know, that you can see that extend back and extend back. Like if I look at my own family, I grew up with a single mom for the most part, and she had body image issues. You know, she was on diets my entire life. Like I could, one time my brother and I had sat on the phone and named all the diets she was on and just like laughed about them because they were <laughs> like varying degrees of ridiculous. And like, but I could also look at her mom and see the diets that she went on, all of her sisters, all the diets that they went on as well. And I didn't know my great grandma, but I'm sure there was probably something in there as well. Mm-hmm. And that gets passed on because it's just normalized. Like I remember as a kid, like before I started dieting, which was, you know, 10 or 11, I remember just everyone being on a diet. I just remember it like being so normal to hear about my aunt joining Weight Watchers again, or I think it was Jenny Craig was the thing at the time. And, or Slim Fast being delivered to our house or whatever those weird food delivery systems that had the weird yeah. freeze-dried food <laughs> delivered to our house. And I just remember it being so normal, like, oh yeah, well, the adults are on diets. Like, that's just what you do. And there's that aspect of just it being normalized. Like, this is just what happens. And then there's the way that we inadvertently will put it on our kids. And it can be that fear of them experience a similar trauma that we experienced. Because it is pretty traumatic to go through, well, any age, but particularly middle school, high school, elementary school, and be bullied for your size. Yeah. Or even like kind of low key bullied, you know, it doesn't have to be really blatant bullying for it to feel really bad. Yeah. And we as parents in doing the best that we can and trying to do the best that we can are trying to protect our kids from experiencing that exact same thing. And so we will go out of our way to try and prevent that. And instead of trying to prevent that experience, like I said earlier, we try and prevent them from ever being in a body that causes that. And because of our own beliefs about body size, because of our own beliefs about health and healthy eating and what is good food and bad food, we, to us, that means they have to eat a certain way. They have to be a certain weight. They have to be a certain size. And it's meant with the best of intentions. It's very, there are extreme cases where it's not best of the best of intentions, but for the most part, it comes from a a place of wanting to protect and keep your child safe. And unfortunately, it's a little bit misplaced. 
but we've done it again and again and again, like throughout generations. Yeah. I'm thinking about like, even if you for once were getting this right with your kid and you're going to do a reset, be of generational dieting in your family. And I mean, who doesn't, right? That then the well-meaning grandparent is going to, you know, do a runaround of you and start delivering the same message to your kid that maybe you internalize and you delivered, but you're trying to turn this around. And then you have other family members who are doing the same thing. What's that like? How does that become sort of part of this work and this reset? Yeah, I think it's really important to note that that absolutely can happen in a lot of ways. Everything from a grandparent or an aunt or another family member making comments about body size or criticizing body size or food choices. And it can also be like, this is what my dad does as a grandpa. It's a lot of, well, I snuck you this extra special treat. And it's like, well, I guess it's extra special because she doesn't usually like Ho-Ho's, but I guess when it comes from grandpa, it's really exciting. It takes food out of this like neutral setting and into this not neutral setting. Yeah. Food is love, right? A very food positive. Yeah. Yeah. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but we're also trying to neutralize it. Like if you want a Ho-Ho, you can have a Ho-Ho. Uh-huh. There's a reason Ho-Ho's aren't very popular in my house because she doesn't actually like them. But when they come from grandpa mm-hmm. and it can, so it can come from a couple different places. It can come from criticism. It can come from judgment and fear. And it can also come from like wanting to be like special treat and give special things. And that is really challenging. It's challenging both as the child who's experiencing those things, who is relatively out of control in those situations. Yes. And it's challenging as the parent to, because you're stuck in the middle there. You're stuck in the middle of being the parent to this child that you're trying to protect and whether you're trying to protect them through that generational dieting experience that you've had. Or you're trying this new thing of trying to not bring that judgment, not bring that same heavy load that we've carried forever onto them. And you're also stuck between your, the people who put it on you, you know, because if your grandparents, if your parents are criticizing your child, it's likely they did to you at some point. Yeah, yeah. And that's a really, really tough place to be. And those conversations to have are really challenging. And because it also depends on their openness to the conversation. And that's true for a lot of things. And Mm -hmm. this one is particularly hard. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, let's pivot to some solutions. Let's talk about the book's sort of three keys for how to raise an intuitive eater. And we're going to work to make this all better. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. 
I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. So I'm back. I'm talking to Amy Severson. She is the author of How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. So the book has these sort of three keys for how to get this right, for how to, we all have some rewiring that we can probably do around food is bad, food is good, food must be healthy, food is love, you know, in our homes. So let's talk about these three keys that are in the book for sort of how to raise intuitive eaters. Yeah, the three keys, we wanted to make it really digestible and easy to grab and to implement. It's not, we don't want to have a big, it's already hard enough to do do anything as a parent, to do big schedule changes, routine changes. So we wanted it to be graspable and understandable and doable on a daily basis. And one of the most like tangible things to do, it's like actually a schedule change. It's actually a thing that you're doing on a daily basis is providing regular and consistent and predictable meals and snacks. That's, you know, day in and day out. There's always breakfast. There's always lunch. There's always snacks. There's always dinner. And letting those things be there all the time with a consistent amount of food can help a kid feel safe in knowing that that they can honor those hunger and fullness cues. I see. And like if, say, for example, because we've all done this as adults too, where maybe we're less hungry at breakfast, but we know that we can eat a smaller breakfast because I know that I'm going to get lunch in a couple hours. Or I know that when I get hungry in a couple hours, I can have a snack. And knowing that I can do that is a trust. It's a trust that I can have as an adult in my own body and in my own, you know, ability to walk upstairs to my kitchen and grab food. Yeah. And for kids, it's a trust in their body and a trust in you as a parent that you'll provide those things. Because when we are parents and our children are, you know, less than teenagers, they are pretty reliant on us to provide food and provide a space for them to eat and kind of that permission for them to eat it. And by doing that consistently, by consistently having that available and having a variety of foods, foods that they will eat. Like I'm not going to give my kid thinking of the foods that she really doesn't like fish and mashed potatoes. Yeah. Hates them. Um, <laughs> yeah, so. that's a tough sell for a lot of kids. <laughs> I'm not going to give it to her for dinner and have that be the only food we have because I know she won't eat it. If we're going to have fish, I will have, I don't know, rice or pasta on the side because I know she'll eat that. My kid is a weird one who hates mashed potatoes. And I don't understand why, but that's okay. <laughs> but I'm not going to like provide these foods. I'm like, I don't know, Brussels sprouts. She's eight. She's not going to eat those things. And, but she can eat the noodles and she can be cool with that. Like, and that can be fine. And I can be fine with that. And she knows that she can get up and get more if she's, if she wants more food, if she didn't get enough from them, you know, however much she started with, because the importance is that she eats enough. And it doesn't mean that she eats everything on the plate. And it doesn't mean that she even tries everything on the plate. It's just exposing exposures to these foods again and again. And knowing that if dinner doesn't keep her very full, she gets a snack before bed because it's a, I don't know, 6 to 8.30. Yeah. Yeah. It's there. It's available. I see. Right. And you've taken out the like, well, you didn't have the Brussels sprouts at dinner. So I guess you weren't that hungry that we removed that. Exactly. There's no consequence to not eating. There's no... There's no consequence. Right, right. And there's no fear of, well, this is the last time I'm going to get to eat. Or I think one that we have a lot as parents is like, we see kids, birthday parties is a good example here. So we see kids at birthday parties and how often do kids really get cake or cupcakes? Like I, I mean, I think I probably used to bake a lot more often, but I'm tired. I don't do it as often now. And so they're exciting. A cake, cupcakes are really exciting to get it at a birthday party. And so kids will usually like 
eat a lot more of it. But if cake or cupcakes or desserts that a kid wants are available on a fairly regular basis, then it becomes really normal to just and safe to have as much as you want to have because you know it will be there again. We have like a lot of conversations with my daughter of, well, you know, like the way I know a lot, a lot of the ways that like after dinner conversations go is, well, if you aren't hungry and you don't want to have this, we made ice cream the other night. If you don't want to have this ice cream that we made tonight, it's going to be here tomorrow. Like I'm not going to throw it away tonight. It'll still be here tomorrow. Or, well, I ate the last cookie, so you can't have a cookie, but I'm going to get, we can get more at the store. Like it's always going to be here. And, or, you know, at the grocery store, you can have candy tomorrow because we've got Oreos. And next time you can, because next time you go to the store, you can pick a candy bar because it's going to be here. You know, providing that, like, this isn't your only chance to have a candy bar. This isn't the special occasion that, like, it's only available this time. It's just food. And yeah, well, you already got something, so you don't need to get another thing, but it'll be here. You can have it again. So that's the first one. So that's sort of, there's both routine and then flexibility within that routine. There's always food. You'll always have, mm-hmm. you're safe. You can always have food when you want to because there are these reliable times of day and places that it'll be mm-hmm. there for you. Okay. What's the second key? The, well, these are out of order because I'm, that's the way I think. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite keys is providing and showing unconditional love for your child, which feels like a given. It kind of is as a parent, I think. And also, there are a lot of ways that we put some conditional acceptance and love on our kids without even realizing we were doing it. And one of the ways that really can show up a lot is with food and body size. It's a lot of, you know, I I think a lot of us as adults can really resonate with, well, I would be happier, I'd be more loved, I would be better, I don't know, whatever that word that resonates is, if I was thinner, things would be better, things would be different if I was thinner. And we can start to prove that wrong as parents. We can take body size, body shape, weight, energy level, activity, participation, completely out of the equation of how much we prove to our kids again and again that not only are they loved, but they are worthy of that love forever. And, you know, that's a very big concept, but it's very much just taking body size out of the conversation because it's not part of our love for them. And it, that never needs to be. Yep. And that means also doing that work for yourself, right? I mean, that's that might be, depending on your history, a complicated message to accept first for yourself so that then you can deliver it for your children. Yeah. For most people, that is a very challenging one uh-huh. because we do have a lot of internalized beliefs and internalized expectations of not, of not only what our child's body should be, but what our own body should be. And that is, I mean, there's an entire because it's a four-part book and there's one of the entire parts is dedicated to how to make the shift for yourself as a parent. Mm. You know, coming back to that generational dieting piece, it's so important to start to unravel your own stuff so we don't incidentally put it on our kids. And that conditional love can be one of the ways that we do that. And I don't think most parents don't want to put that on their kids. No. Don't want their kids to think that their love is contingent on how quote unquote good they look, how thin they are, how successful they are even. But it takes work, right? It does take work. And the third part is that developing your intuitive eating voice, which I like this because, it, again, it's not like, just stop worrying about it, mom, and it'll be fine. No, you have to you have to stop doing things the old way, and then you have to learn how to do things kind of a, a new way. So what does that mean? What does your intuitive eating voice sound like? That intuitive eating voice is back to that trusting your body, trusting that your body will ask for what it wants, will be okay. And that can take... 
I think we use the word developing because it can take time because it can, it's a practice to develop it. It's developing the ability to hear that voice, to recognize what hunger and fullness feels like in your body, Mm. to recognize what the desire to move or the desire to rest feels like in your body, to recognize the the cravings maybe you have or you don't have in a moment and how to feed your body through those with those or you know when you don't want anything at all but you know you need food how to feed yourself regardless and to dismantle the internalized diet culture that we all have to some degree and is kind of a constant dismantling of that throughout our lives because we are constantly surrounded by messages that we should have that we should continue to build up that internalized diet culture But when we have, you know, kale built up as the ultimate food and cupcakes built up as the ultimate like demon food. Right. We can break that down and realize that like you're allowed to not like kale and never eat it again. Because honestly, I hate kale. I think it's weird. Um, And you're also allowed to like cupcakes, but not need to eat them all the time. And not because they're bad for you, but because it's just food. Right. And that takes a lot of internal work and a lot of trust in the process. And You also don't have to be perfect at this. You don't have to have all of your own stuff figured out before you can start to implement all of this with your kids as well. There is a pretty big truth to faking it till you make it with this stuff because Uh there's not like a point where it's too late or or you're too far along or you can't do it until you're perfect enough at this because there's no such thing. I see. Right. It's constant work. But good work. I've been talking to Amy Severson. She's the co-author of How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, Raising the Next Generation with Food and Body Confidence. Amy, tell us where listeners can find out more about your book, your work, everything that you do to support families in this space. Absolutely. Information about our book is available on intuitive eating for the number four kids.com. And that's where we have any events we have listed. There's links to buy the book on that website. Sumner and I are both on that one. Um, You can submit questions to us as well through that site. And then you can find me personally at prospernutritionwellness.com. I am a dietitian in Bellingham. I have a private practice. You can reach out to me me through there. And you can also find me on Instagram at Amy is Talking. It's A-M-E-E is Talking. And Twitter at Amy Severson. I'm going to put links to all of that in the show notes so everybody can find it all in one place. Amy, thanks so much for talking to me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wannabe Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.